And um, that's what I did one night. I did all my stuff and I, I took tablets and ended up in a hospital. Um, and then when they started talking to me, they said, this is abuse. This is every type of abuse, physical, emotional, financial, every type of abuse. Hello and welcome to Girls With Goals. I'm Neve Marr. We're bringing you a very important show this week in partnership with Women's Aid and with AIB as well. We're talking about financial and economic abuse. And a little bit later on, we'll be chatting to a woman who has been through something like this. But first, I want to introduce my guest this week. So Margaret Martin is here and you are the director of Women's Aid. Margaret, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Neve. Thank you Thank so you. much. I think it's um, really important to talk about these kind of issues and anything that we can do to put it out there a little bit more is so crucial. So I suppose with that in mind, you know, the first thing that I want to talk about is economic abuse mm -hmm. and financial abuse in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so for any of our listeners and our readers of her who wouldn't be as familiar with that term as they would say with domestic abuse. Yes. Can you just kind of explain it to us a little bit? Well, it's, I suppose it's a bit like domestic abuse in that it's, it's one of the ways it manifests itself. Mm. Um, a lot of behaviours within a domestic violence relationship are about control. So it's very much about control. Uh, we've been hearing about financial abuse or economic abuse, whichever term you prefer, uh, way back since before the Celtic Tiger. So um, people tend to understand it. We found people were more interested in it when, once the recession hit mm. and the crash and people were, all, you know, so many people were worried about money and counting their pennies, etc. But that it, it had existed all the way through. It has nothing to do with the level of resources that a couple have or a family have. It's very much more about control. And it's unusual enough for anybody to experience one form of abuse on its own. It can happen, certainly. But a lot of the time there will be emotional abuse, there may be sexual abuse, there may be physical abuse. Most people tend to think of domestic violence very much in terms of physical abuse yeah. and they don't really understand very much the other parts of it. Mm. But it's it's very much about controlling and what the way things we see very much are sometimes it's about blocking or interfering with or trying to, to undermine a woman when she's trying to get her own independent income. Mm. So it's about getting income and then it's about having your income and having control over your income and what you do with it. And uh, it manifests itself in a whole range of different ways. And also, uh, you know, when you look at economic abuse, sometimes people carry into that also your assets, whether they're your car or your home or something like that. And that we'd see very much as part of financial abuse. Sometimes it's about damaging that. Was it something that you know the way you say that like it was it was always there yeah was it something that for a while women themselves weren't necessarily talking about whether it was to do with a stigma or or whether it was something to do with not thinking that maybe it was as significant as like you say yeah. the physical abuse or the domestic abuse that we kind of you know have seen and is very well documented yeah. in society would that be something that i think i think for an awful lot of women um, you know, it, it's not like um, if you're mugged on the street or something. So, you know, there's this single incident and it's, you know, it's on a scale from one to ten in terms of severity, etc. But it's very definable. Mm. So in terms of, of emotional abuse and financial abuse, they are always smaller pieces. 
And it's the accumulation of all of these pieces that really have the impact. And that's why it's very good now we have a new crime since the 1st of January and coercive control. Mm -hmm. And that's accepting that it's not just one thing. It's the build-up of a lot of small pieces. So typically what we'd hear from women about is, as I said, they may be trying to get a job. Sometimes we've even heard of women who've been... Uh, he may take the keys to the car. If she's going to be driving off to the interview, he may even lock her in the house. Yeah. Uh, women being undermined are, you know, uh, when they want to undertake some sort of training that's going to lead them towards financial independence. Because still you will have very much a traditional uh, divide in terms of, of childminding. Mm. So typically it's much more common that when you have children, that, and particularly given the cost of childcare in Ireland, that when you have a couple of children, that it, the woman might decide to take you know, a couple of years mm. out or reduce her hours down or something. Mm. So in terms of our economic independence, sometimes it's very much reduced around that time. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that when you're in the throes of a very romantic relationship and you know, you're very enamoured with your partner and it all seems to be going well, the idea of having a joint account is absolutely fine. And that can lead to a lot of problems later yeah. if that's the only account that you have and you don't have control over um, over the income or if equally if you don't know what's happening to some of that income or some of that money. Yeah, I, I suppose that's one of the things that I've found when I've been speaking to, to colleagues and to people, you know, when I said that we were going to do a show like this, you know, the how do people get into this situation is the question that I found came up quite a lot. Yeah. A lot of the throwaway comments would be, it's 2019, why don't you have your own independence? Mm. You should have your own bank account. Mm. So mm. just to kind of understand that and just to kind of, you know, really learn more about that from all of, of our point of view, say someone who's never been in that situation, like how do these situations come about. I mean, you know, I think sometimes the problem that we have when we talk about abuse is that there's a flippancy yeah. from people who have never experienced it. So it's yeah. very easy for me to sit here and say, I'm a 32-year-old woman, I've always had my own bank yeah. account. But yeah. I've never been in a situation like that yeah. thus far. Yeah. So is it romance? Is it a level of trust that maybe goes too far at the beginning of a relationship? It can be really simple things. Sometimes it can be something as simple as, as you know, a couple meet um, they become really interested in each other. You know, what we'd hear most often is the woman has a house or she has an apartment, it's hers, and he moves in. Mm. And, you know, they, they, there's a kind of rosy haze at the beginning. And then she starts to think, well, he's not really paying any of the bills, so I'm mm. still paying all the bills. And, you know, I mean, part of the kind of ideal that we have of being an adult, as you say, is economic independence, mm. but also that you negotiate and you work things out and that people pay their own way. Um, and, you know, it, that's ebbs and flows in a relationship. And, and that's the essence of a relationship that you look after each other. So there's a lot of things sometimes that, that can be OK for a short while. Mm. But you start to look at it and think, oh, right, you know, now we've been living together for six months and he's not paying any of the bills. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, typically what we'd hear about is he's thrown up his job. And he's no money and he wants to borrow money. And so it, all of these things, one thing spirals into another thing and spirals into another thing. So it almost it almost starts as dependence sometimes on, on like from the woman, yeah. as in like, you know, she she may be the person in that more power position 
originally and then that kind of yeah. starts to change it can, yeah, as it much. escalates yeah. yeah and then I think the other thing is I thought um, I don't know if people would be familiar with it but uh, the Jessica Bose was on the Late Late Show yeah. a number of weeks ago I saw that yeah. and it was just really interesting how she was talking about the early stage of her relationship and one of the things that she was talking about was that she had a fairly ordinary car and her partner came along and, you know, gave her this present of this amazing car. Mm. And she was completely blown away by it. And he said, oh, I'll just sell your car and, you know, put it towards it. But he had kept keys to it and he kept the, the you know, so even though he was giving it to her, he never actually gave her the certificate of ownership. Right. So it was so his. So it was a control move. So it was a control move, which mm. she did not see, of course. Yeah. And then it was only when she'd get up in the morning and she'd go to take the kids to school or something, and the car wasn't there because he'd yeah. taken it. And then the car wasn't there more and more often. Mm. So, you know, that thing of, of freedom of movement is also a big thing that we hear an awful lot about. Yeah. And even all, I mean, one of the things, you know, when people were talking about the, the, the crash and they were saying, you know, is this something new? We had been hearing from women who would be, you know, have a professional background themselves. Their partner would have a professional background, big house, big cars. But there was a huge level of control, particularly if she was living at home. Yeah. And the, there's a very strong correlationship that was found in Irish research back in 2005 that where there's a partner who's controlling the finances, there's seven times more likelihood to be domestic violence. So yeah. there is, you know, so when you pull out some of the statistics, they're very stark, like one in 10 women are experiencing financial abuse. And even though she had all of the the... I suppose, the accoutrements that show wealth, mm. you know, hair done, good clothes, big car, very little access to cash. And women are sometimes very controlled about freedom of movement. He may be checking the mileage. He may be taking the keys. He may be giving her very little money. I've given her a 10 or a 20 euro to take the kids to school or something. Yeah. And she ends up in this really difficult situation then where she looks like she's loads of money. And people start saying, but she never gives my kids a lift or she never, you know, yeah. or she never, you know, I've asked her to go for coffee. She's never asked me, you know, because yeah. we make these assumptions that if you look Absolutely. like you have money, you do have money. Yeah. Um, and and it's 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 like a lot of things, you know, it's when you look back, you can see how you got there. But as you kind of getting sucked into this situation, you don't necessarily see how the pieces lead one step into another yeah. and that that's how the abuse um, is is built up over time. And the other thing is, I mean, we live in a world now very high tech mm. um, and Sometimes what we find is that women, their partners are able to hack into their accounts, into their bank accounts. They get a lot of personal information. Even if they, if those women split up with their partners, they still, they've had to change their, their mobile number, their, you know, their social media accounts, sometimes their bank accounts. But they're still, they've got so much information mm. that they know, you know, how to, to get in and hack and yeah. sometimes take money. And, you know, in a lot of relationships, partners will have forged the, their signatures on, on mortgage, you know, for a lot of bank loans. So I think that's why it's really, really good to have a bank like with AIB actually yeah. taking this on and saying, we understand that this can be happening to you yeah. if you need to come and talk to us. Please do come and talk to us. I mean, the, the same research that found out that about the ratio of, you know, being seven times more likely that if there's financial control, that there's domestic yeah. abuse. It found that about one in three women will never tell anyone.
So if I'm not going to tell and you're not going to tell your best friend, mm. telling the bank is way down that list yeah. of the kinds of people you might talk to about it. Yeah. And as you say, like people do kind of go, oh, sure, you know, we're in the 21st century and we have, you know, we just tap your card and it's all so seamless. Mm. Um, but the, the reality is that, that, that it can happen to anybody and it does happen to anybody. And I mean, I suppose, Margaret, the other thing to kind of bring up, like the stats on this, you know, are are incredible. In, in 2018, there were over 19,000 contacts with, with Women's Aid yeah. direct services alone. Um, and then you heard as well over 1,500 disclosures of financial abuse within intimate relationships. But what I found even more interesting is that in reality, that figure is actually just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. Yeah. And then you said it earlier as well, one in 10 women in yeah. Ireland are experiencing it. Is, is it something about, and obviously, you know, AIB and, and the work that they're doing at the moment with their campaign yeah. has really made, yeah. like, do you know, it's just made people think about it differently. Yes. It's literally made yes. people think, how would you feel yeah. if this was happening to you? Yeah. Because sometimes I think, you know, in the media and, and, you know, across the board, when we're talking about abuse, but we've never been in the situation, it's very difficult to really understand yes. how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose going back to the the early simpler, the early kind of stages of something like this and the early signs, mm. What would you say to a woman who who might be listening to this or, or watching this and a few things are ringing true with her, yeah. but she's never actually thought about using the term abuse yes. for her situation. Yeah. What would you say to, to that person? And I, and I suppose, what are those early signs to watch out for? Because presumably what we're saying is like, if you see anything of this nature, get out. Yeah, well, not necessarily get out. I suppose if yeah. if, you, if there's something you're worried about, there's a couple of things maybe just to say about that. Is one is for a long time we've been doing a campaign called Two Into You, which yeah. is primarily aimed at younger women, mm -hmm. because you know it's much easier to get out of an abusive relationship before you've bought a house together, before you have a couple of kids together. Yes. You know, your your lives become very knitted in those kind of, you know, situations. So yeah. if you can get out of an abusive relationship and understand what's happening, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be that much easier than if you're much deeper into that relationship. And it's, it's much more complex than to, and, and women are very often trapped with kids and mortgages and, you know, negative equity and all these yeah. kind of things. So we have on our, on our main website, we have a two into you website as well. But mm -hmm. if anybody wants to go onto our, you know, womensaid.ie, they can link into that. And what we've done is we've done um, a, a relationship health check, which somebody can do no matter what age you are, because the, the, the tactics are very similar regardless of the age. Nice. Um, and the, you can also look at, you know, some of the things that have been happening and reading some of the case studies. Um, and it, it's, it's, I think if you step out from thinking of it as sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, you know, and financial abuse, it's the essence of an awful lot of it is about control. Yeah. So control can take different forms. And a very, very common one that we would hear about is this whole thing about isolation. So one of the things we'd have in that, you know, we have a, a, a guide like 10 signs to dating abuse. Mm -hmm. So is this thing that in an early um, part of a relationship are in the early stages of a relationship, it can be really seductive if somebody just wants to see you all the time. Yeah. And, you know, that you're saying, you know, oh, it's Friday night, the weekend's up and, you know, the girls are going for a drink and, 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 they, and you know, he says, oh, but it's a beautiful night. 
let's go for cocktails and some rooftop place or something. And so sounds wonderful. So it's always the better option. Yeah. In um, depending on it's somebody who knows you, so they know how to tempt you in a sense. Mm. And what we hear then is how women lose contact a lot of the time with their support base, with their family. And that grows and grows and grows. Like this doesn't just all happen in one week. Mm. It grows over a period of time. So then even when you are out with your friends, you might be texting all the time. Yeah. And we have a lot of posters around that, you know, just like, where are you? What are you doing? Who's there? Um, and then when the evening's finished and he knows where you are, he might show you up even though, and he'll say, oh, I was really worried about you getting home and, you know, right, all of this yeah. kind of thing. So it can seem very productive protective mm. but a lot of the time if that is a consistent pattern in your relationship what's actually it's about being able to step back and be you know we can ring women's aid helpline anytime day or night yeah. we're 24 7 if english isn't your main language we have access to 170 languages within about 30 seconds to a minute mm. so you can speak you know in your own language about it and it's then trying to make sense of that and What's interesting is, um, it, and I know it'll be quite a leap for people in a way, but we one of the other things that we do is since 1996, we've been tracking and gathering information on all of the women who've been killed violently in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have 22 years of data and uh, we publish that each year. And we, it shows that of the, it's, it's quite different to what people tend to think of in terms of um, people used to think very much, and hopefully it's changing a little bit, that women were at a very high level of risk from strangers in terms of assault, sexual assault, physical assault on the street. The reality is you're more, much more likely to be killed in your own home. Yeah. You know, that's about 63% of women are killed in their own home. About 87% of women are killed by somebody they know. About half of all of the women who've been killed in Ireland have been killed by a current or ex-partner. So your relationship is much more risky mm. than it is for a man. And um, at our last conference, we had a woman who's uh, a woman called Dr. Jane Monkton-Smith, if people are interested in her. She was a police officer and she's used a lot of information to track what are the very early signs. And she's developed, particularly for the police to use, the, the kind of different eight stages in a relationship. And one of the things that she talks about, and it had such an echo for us, although we'd never really pinpointed it before, is this desire for overcommitment, early commitment. Mm. And the way somebody might even talk about you. So very early on, wanting to move in really quickly. I've never met anybody like you. Yeah. And it, it can be. And if you're kind of your instinct just feels like it's a little bit rushed, trust that instinct. Yeah. Um, and that it's all those things. It's not like there's a particular thing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of women we would be supporting and we would know their partners have come from a, an abusive relationship before. They, they will have found that out. He may have moved on to somebody else. Mm. So they effectively are going to get better, really, at, at what they're doing. And they can be very effective at grooming um, and, and feeding in and even just picking up on somebody who, you know, sometimes people will say to me, is it vulnerable women? But life being what it is, we can all be vulnerable at some particular yeah, point. Absolutely. I think like just to kind of ask a question about the people who are committing this type of abuse. I know it might sound like completely simple, but why are they 
doing this? Like, I mean, we have so much research and so much information about, you know, what happens to women, which is obviously crucial to have. Mm. But I suppose, like, you know, one of the main things that we can always say is that a lot of women don't know that they're getting involved with someone who might have, like you said, a history of this kind of abuse. So, I mean, and again, you know, you can't go through your life like looking out for these kind of people yes. and you know they're they're obviously very skilled at integrating themselves mm. into people's lives yeah. um but you know what what is the end goal is it just that having that control is it just having that power is it narcissism like what exactly narcissism is it is certainly part of it i yeah. mean I, I think there's not enough research in right. relation to that but i think a lot of the there is there is a kind of commonality of, you know, a sense of entitlement. Mm. And it's it comes from a lot of historic kind of um, views in terms of women's role. And so, you know, I know we all think we're, we've progressed and mm. we have progressed massively. But there is an idea that, you know, a lot of men would think, OK, you're my wife now. You know, and yeah. for a lot of women, it is when they actually get married or when they get pregnant. Mm. Because the the other piece of research that is very startling is that women who are physically seriously assaulted, for a quarter of them, that abuse started when they were pregnant. Wow. So there's there's a really strong correlation, and it's a very high risk time yeah. in terms of pregnancy. And it is it it's it's a hard one to read in terms of like what is the motivation behind that. Mm. And it's two things really that possibly it could be, I would think. One is that the attention very often switches from the man to the woman because a lot of people would say, oh, how's it going? How are you? And when, you know, suddenly she becomes wow, much more... that's interesting, yeah. Because uh, a lot of it is about controlling things. And the other one is that, that he knows now that she's much more dependent. So he can... You know, if you've been trying to kind of control somebody and make somebody, you know, a, a more compliant yeah. in that, because um, there's some things that the, that in abusive relationships there can be some really bizarre behaviours that are almost like particular things that just set them off. It mm. can be housework, it can be all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's knowing that, that now it's not as easy for you to leave, you know, um, so it's, I think, unfortunately, it, it would be, there's not a lot of data, there's not a lot of yeah. research anyway, but I think it, it, the motivations behind it. And a lot of it is supported. I think, you know, there is this thing of um, victim blaming, you know, that, that, that we're gradually moving away from in terms of sexual abuse. Yeah. So that thankfully now people are much less likely to say, well, she shouldn't have gone there and she shouldn't have been drinking. And, and there will be people who will say all of that and she shouldn't, she shouldn't have been wearing whatever it was mm. that she was wearing. So they, but we still have that. I mean, guys are beaten up and assaulted and killed by other guys. Mm. Nobody ever turns around and says well, what was he wearing or why was he out there or did he have, you know, why did he have a few drinks? So you don't have that same victim blaming. Mm. Um, Whereas you do have that. It's almost like women are burdened, even though they're victimised with the guilt of it and they feel that guilt. Yeah. I want to ask as well about, you know, whether or not family members or, or loved ones if they have inklings that something isn't right or that something 
might not, you know, be be right in the relationship because you said earlier that, you know, a lot of the women who, when they come to the realisation that this is happening, it's been going on for a very long time and and on the surface they might look Mm. a certain way and everything appears to be perfect. You know, is there anything that you would say to family members who might, you know, be listening to this or watching this and who might worry that something like that is going on? And, and what would they do in that situation? Well, I think if anybody's worried, we have an awful lot of information on mm. our website and we get about 500 hits a day. Um, and hopefully it's useful to people. But I think it is about, you know, understanding the issue much more. There, We have a particular section on our website is if somebody close to you has been, if you think somebody's been abused, mm. what can you do? And it's very much about, you know, being supportive um, and timing is a big issue because, as I said, in the beginning, you might see something in terms of behaviours that you feel really ill at ease about, mm. but you can see that this is at a very romantic phase yeah. and it's, you know, that your instinct might be this isn't the time to say it. Because, of course, there's that fear as well. Like, you know, if you if you go anywhere, like, guns blazing and being like, how dare you do this, how dare you do this, you know. Yeah people sometimes are in situations where there is a threat of of violence that may not be out there or or like you said you know something like financial and economic abuse can move on to physical abuse very quickly so um tact I suppose is is very crucial when it comes to that yeah and I and I think that's the thing I mean like a lot of the things that are very helpful to women that if you you know if you think that somebody is struggling and you notice that they don't have a lot of money I mean the most crucial question really to ask somebody in terms of their resources is if you need to get 50 euro by tomorrow, would you be able to do it? There's an awful lot of women who wouldn't be able to do it wow. or 100 euro. That's think, crazy to even think about yeah, it. Yeah. Because they are so controlled mm-hmm. and, and people find that really hard to understand. And I mean, and, and certainly there's a lot of people who are struggling in Ireland, I'm, you know, yeah. so that I'm not belittling any of that. No, of course. But it is... So you can have all of those things. And the the difficulty with it is that resources give you independence. Yeah. Resources give you options. And if you don't have access to something yeah. like that, I mean, we have, <coughs> excuse me, we have about a third of the amount of refuge space. So if you are very frightened, like a lot of women would also live with a level of fear. Yeah. They may have seen flashes of it. They may never have been physically abused, but something in them is telling them this guy if I leave or if I, you know, they will know that. They'll, yeah. they'll sometimes say that. I'm afraid, you know, at, at some level, I'm afraid of what he might do if I was to leave. And an awful lot of women would talk to us. An awful lot of women live with death threats or threats that he will kill himself if she leaves, you know, or that he will take the kids and kill himself and the kids crash the car and it, that, you know, would burden will be on her head for the rest of her life. Mm. So, you know, you, there's all of those things going on and it can be really, really difficult. But there's a lot of information that if you're interested in trying to find out a bit more, mm. it's it's helpful. For I think that the thing that has such resonance for most women and for people closer are women's stories, yeah. other women's stories. Because I can sit here and say, this happens to every woman, mm. you know, no matter what her age is, no matter what background, what accent she has, what sort of profession, yeah. what sort of background she's come from. But when you read all the stories, when you meet these women, when those women speak, it becomes crystal clear that it is women in all different classes and in all different environments and um, you know, that that money is a protection in a lot of ways, but it's not always a protection in terms yeah. of abuse. And the thing is, it's it's not like just like listening to you and kind of learning more from you. It's not about the amount of money. It's yeah. about the access yeah. to money. So yeah. it doesn't actually, you know, yeah. this is a, a kind of abuse that goes across yeah. 
all spheres in yeah. society, which is really frightening as well. Yeah. And you might have somebody who's who's able to go and buy stuff on credit cards so long as it's clothes to make her look good, so he looks good. Yeah. But if she wants to get the school books for the kids, if you know, I mean, it's just it's interesting the flashpoints that that come up as being mm-hmm. problematic. Even that thing of the minute that the technology advanced. So that you know, when you go to the supermarket, you get you get your your list of all your receipts, and you can tick them off, or whatever. That so many women talked about their partners using that, both in two ways. And um, one was going through it and seeing what they spent their money on, and if they were spending it on tampons, if they were spending it on sometimes on infant formula, they came up enough a lot of the time, in terms of you know controlling that. Yeah. The other thing is, all of those receipts will give you time. So for an awful lot of women. They're, they're so controlled that, um, and it's, again, it's this tactic to keep them isolated. He can come in and look at it and, and demand it and look at it and say, but you said, to, you, know, you know, that you finished in the supermarket at half six, but you're in your, you know, you didn't come home till half seven. Yeah. And then she'd say, which she didn't maybe want to say, well, I dropped into my mother's, or I dropped into my friend's. Um, because it is, it's, it's becomes a really difficult environment to be operating it for women and so they're always trying to second guess an yeah. awful lot of them I mean you get you know I suppose it changes over time and I think that's the thing that even if there is no physical abuse the financial control and abuse is so crippling and that's really why it's important that there's a bank that understands this yeah, that's the leadership about saying you know, because the other thing that, that when we even start to discuss this, which never had occurred to me even before, and I'm steeped in this in a way, no, but, you know, most people won't be, is because I had never thought of checking. If I take money out in, at an ATM, from an ATM, does that show where that ATM um, is? So, you know, if somebody wants to track your movements, yeah. if, you know, if you buy something, it'll very often show where you were, yeah. as well as On what time receipt, you were yeah. there. You know, so... There's there's a lot of information out there, and it it's about understanding that, and then this assumption that you can always send information to somebody at their own address, uh, and if a woman, you know, for a lot of women, so I suppose the other thing to say that's a really important thing to say that a woman might be trying to leave a relationship, yeah. so she might be in the past have been squirreling away some money, mm. and if she's trying to do that in another account and something comes in that's a statement from that account and he hasn't known about it, that's another indication that, that she maybe is thinking about leaving and that's a flashpoint. The risk escalates very dramatically around Trigger the time point, yeah. that, you know, where women are planning to leave or have left. Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, the other thing that people very often don't realise is an awful lot of women have left the relationship. They've been out of the... the I mean, we would work with women. They're out of the relationship six months, six years, you know, for a very long time. And you can still get women who are being stalked or being harassed. He keeps inserting himself back in her life yeah. and finding ways to cut into her life. Yeah. I suppose, you know, you, you mentioned there about the women's stories being really crucial. And, yeah. and we're going to we're gonna go and, and listen to a woman's story now. Um, but before I let you go, you know, when you said there that a lot of the times you're working with, with women who are six months out of a relationship and and that person is still there and very Mm. much an influence in their life. You know, women can get out of these situations, right? I mean, like, and there is, like, women's aid and and places that they can go in order to 
break the cycle. Although when yeah. we're talking about it, it feels very insular and it feels like just like even the pressure and the anxiety of what you're speaking about yeah. is just astronomical to me. Like yeah. I, I can't imagine like the toll that that would have on, yeah. on your own mental health as well as anything. Yeah. But it does you know, people can break the cycle. And I, I really oh, want to kind yeah. of end on that because no, I want No, no, and it, that's a huge thing. And actually, it, it's interesting because a lot of the time we would get contact from women maybe when they're in a second relationship and they're going to get married. Right. And they'll drop us a line and they'll send us a card or something and say, you know, I used your services whatever number of years ago. Yeah. And now I'm in, you know, so it's, it's, it's I'm in a whole new life. Mm. And even, um, I think it was the beginning of, of, at the end of last year, we got a, a contact and we got a, a small donation from a woman who said, I had a very vicious and controlling, now this was going back to the 80s, wow. um, husband. And thankfully through Women's Aid, I was able to leave. And I just want to say, I've had an amazing life. I've, you know, my my kids have done really well, you know, they've thrived. I have just, you know, I said, I'm, I'm so content with my life. I've been able to be the person I want to be. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it is not something that's inevitable, as you say. Absolutely. But it, I think that I think it's important that people understand in, mm. in order to be able to give that support. And also for women themselves to understand this is a journey. Yeah. You know, and if they have gone back, like a lot of women as well, they they leave their partner and then he seduces them back or, yeah. you know, the pressures get too much. Because or they lo go love is there yeah. as well. Like yeah. that's that's a whole other yeah. thing that we haven't necessarily want, talked you about. You wanted it to work. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, they beat themselves up over that, that they yeah. give it another chance. But why wouldn't you give it another chance? Mm. You know, so that, that not to feel that that's why, yeah. you know, it, particularly if you have children together, you want to make it. For an awful lot of women, they do stay mm. and, you know, they they reach a point then and they, for an awful lot of women, they just realise he's not going to change, yeah. you know, and the only way things are going to change is if I look after myself and the kids and our leave or whatever. Yeah. And you'll obviously still have to have contact. Yeah. But it, it it is. And I think one of the things that women do talk about is that freedom, freedom of movement. And I remember we used to have this quite quite a dated uh, video now, but it was of this woman and her husband was incredibly abusive. He, you know, they weren't allowed to have locks on the toilet doors. He never called her by her name. And she said, it is such a pleasure for me to just take a flask and a sandwich and I can go anywhere and I can have a picnic and I can just sit down and no one's going to harass me. And it was just that sense of now yeah. it's okay. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Margaret Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Really important to hear these kind of stories as, as harrowing as some of them are. It's also important to note the work that you do with Women's Aid and to know, you know, that there are ways that you can get out of those situations. So uh, really appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Neve. So as I said, um, we are going to speak to a woman now who has been through something like this before. So take a listen. In the following interview, Louise has asked that we protect her identity so her voice has been changed for her protection. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about financial abuse on Girls With Goals this week and we were speaking there with Margaret Martin, the Director of Women's Aid. Um, she mentioned something really interesting about how the stories of uh, abuse survivors and victims are are crucial when it comes to understanding more. And I think that's why it's so important to hear from people who've been through similar situations. So 
I suppose, would you be able to tell me first off about the relationship that you were in? Well, I, I had my, at the time I was self-employed, had my own job, I had a son, um, I had my own career, car, mortgage, everything that works. And I met this man um, who presented this great image of what a new family would be. And when you've been doing it all on your own, and my mum had died recently, it was all just this lovely fairy tale picture. And I bought it hook, line and sinker. He moved in, um, but when he moved in, he didn't want to pay rent towards my mortgage. He said, why should he be paying my bills? So he didn't contribute anything to the finances. But he was generous. If we went out for dinner, he paid, he bought me jewellery, He, but I paid all the bills. But it did feel a bit, at that stage, it started to feel controlling because I would be going around literally with no money because I was suddenly higher expenses in the house and whatever. And then he's looking like the really generous man when you go out and I'm there with no money to buy a drink because the money wasn't split. So that was the start of it, but you still don't really see it at the time. And then things escalated when I had my first daughter, my child, our child. We were married at this stage and we had a child. And because I was self-employed, I had to stop working and I had no income. So that's when things got really scary. And before you entered into the marriage, you know, you spoke there about how there were early signs, maybe. Mm -hmm. Were they alarm bells that, that you vocalised to anybody else or, or was it just kind of an instinct that you had that you thought this might be a little bit odd but it's not a big enough deal to talk to someone well, about? The first time something happened you, you're a little bit shaken and, and you just go but no relationship's perfect so your tolerance level builds up to what you know if he had done the worst thing he did at the start of the relationship I would never have seen him the second night but it wasn't. The tolerance builds up over time. So the first time, the first controlling issue we had was when we went out to dinner on our very first proper date, say, and I went to pour the bottle of wine. The bottle of wine was between us and I went to pour it. And he said, put that down now. No lady ever pours her own glass of wine. You've just made a show of the two of us. And I did. I. I you know, I just went, oh, my God, have I been doing these social gaffes all my life and not even realising that people think I'm, I'm uneducated or I'm on this? And it shocked me to the core. But and, and it, I was shaken. And then it took about two days and I went, what the hell? That's uh, no, he's wrong. I was willing to pay half that bottle of wine. I'm entitled to pour a bottle of wine if I want to, you know. But it took me two days to realise that. And then I used to tease him about it and he kind of accepted it. But even though I joked about it, I never again poured a bottle of wine in public. So it did get in under my skin. And um, so there were things that happened. But nothing is bad until I got pregnant. And that's when things really escalated. Because once I got pregnant, he knew. And he kept, from the time we met, he kept asking us to have a child together. And I kept saying no, because I had been a lone parent with a child of my own. And my mom had helped me. And now my mom was dead and I was going, I don't want to be a lone parent again and have no mother this time. So it was my greatest fear was to have a child. And um, he, from the time we met, he kept saying, can we have a child together? Can we have a child together? Can we have a child? And in my innocence, I suppose I thought, well, if we get married, we can have a child. We got married almost immediately. I got pregnant and things changed drastically because then he knew my biggest fear was for him to abandon me when I was pregnant with a second child. And that's when he took complete control of me. 
Did he use that first off before the control elements came in when it came to your finances? Did he use that threat against you from the very early stages of the pregnancy? So he was he was using something that he knew was an insecurity oh, of yours? Absolutely, absolutely, definitely. Um, the first, he had always been aggressive and never violent toward, well, depending on what you determine violent, he'd never physically assaulted me. He threw things at me, but never had hit me. And I, I know that's like your level of tolerance builds up, but he'd never hit me. But once I got pregnant, he did hit me and he hurt me. Um, and I remember I was five months pregnant and it was a really, it was a really nasty assault. And I, I couldn't sleep the whole night, you know, obviously. And the next morning he had slept downstairs and the next morning I went down to him and I showed him the bruises and his words were, well, what did you do to set me off? Because he couldn't remember he'd been drinking. And I said, I asked you, did you have a good night? That's what I, and I said to him, get out of this house now. And he refused to. And I said, I'll call the guards. And he just smirked. And I don't know how, but he knew I wouldn't have called the guards because I was a very private person. And, and that image of being a battered wife, I would never have accepted that label. I would never have had the guards coming to my house and to be seen in that vulnerable state. It wasn't who I was and wouldn't be. So he knew that. Like, he was clever in ways. And um, so then I threatened him. You don't leave the house. I'm going to drive over to your parents now and I'm going to show them what you did to your pregnant wife. And that got him out of his ha the house. So he left and his parents were away at the time. So he went and stayed in his parents' house. And about three or days later, the reality was settling with me, like going, I'm pregnant. I have a mortgage. I have, I'm, I'm self-employed. I won't be able to work for almost a year. What am I going to do financially? How am I going to, are we going to be evicted? Are we going to be homeless? Because I had a son and now a new baby on the way. And the panic, the pure financial panic swept over me. And I think I spent about three days not sleeping or eating, just pure, impure panic. Did he apologise? No, this is, the pro this is the part that really happened. He wanted to come back home before his parents got back home. And I wanted to let him back home purely for the financial reasons purely because I couldn't think of any other way. I'd never even had social welfare before. I didn't even know social welfare really existed. Yeah. I, I, do you know what I mean? I hadn't a clue and it wouldn't have been enough anyway. But anyhow, I, I have phoned him and said, you can come over and we can have a talk. And I remember in my head making a bargain with myself going, give, give me some reason so I can justify to myself that I'll take you back. I wanted to be able, I knew I shouldn't be taking him back. I knew 100%. But I, but I needed him for the money. And I wanted him to, to give me a reason. So just to myself, I could sleep easy at night. I could justify, well, he said he promises. Even a promise, he'll never do it again. And he came back and he did say, oh, I won't do it again. And I said to him, well, how do I know you, you'll never do it again? And, and I was really crying out for him to say, because this, or I'll go to council, I do whatever. And his words to me were, well, you, you want me to promise you? How do I trust you? You threatened to go to the guards and go to my parents about me. And I looked at him and I, I thought, you don't get it. You think 
me reacting to your violence is the same as you being violent to your pregnant wife. And I looked and I went, oh, and I genuinely at that time felt a door closing because I had I felt I had no choice to take him back. And I felt. There were no options, you know, I'd, I'd, I, I was going to be living with a man who thought him beating me up was the same as me threatening to go to the guards. I didn't even I couldn't even justify it in my own head to make sense. It, it, so it felt like here's your death sentence. And it felt like I was doing it to keep my children's in, in a roof over their heads. That's what it felt like. I felt like genuinely I was sacrificing my well-being to keep my kids safe. So you said that you felt like you were backed into a wall at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So you were five months pregnant and, you know, the, the control element had started to 100% be there and present and also he'd physically assaulted you. So did it did it manifest itself then after the, the birth of the child in terms of the financial control? And also, were you expecting that to happen like you said there that you almost knew I knew that it was I knew that I was locking myself into a prison and I thought I would be able to cope with it but I didn't think things were going to get as bad as they did you know um he just for instance I um when we, when we had our daughter on the way home he tried to push me out of the car uh, I'd had a cesarean um, and our daughter started crying in the back. Bear in mind, she's four days old. And he turned to her and said, you're a whinge bag like your mother. And I said, please don't talk to her like that. She's a baby. Please don't. And he went, you're an effing Egypt. If, if you think she understands. And I said, well, so, what, so you think you're going to stop? As you, you'll know when she understands. You're going to stop talking like that to her when she understands. And it was at that point he kind of threw me out the car, stopped the car, and tried to push me out. Um, but that, but, but a few days later, I got very sick. I got an infection, and it was a really severe infection. Um, and I had to go back into the hospital. And um, I remember I was in the rotunda, and I was sitting there, and I was so sick, like I just felt so sick. And there was a young boy across the corner, like in the waiting room. He was waiting to go upstairs. I was waiting for a bed and he was so excited. He was only about 17 and um, he had all these balloons with him for his baby. And I just got talking to him and he said to me, um, oh, I have flowers for my girlfriend. And, and I said, did you, are you not? The, he hadn't seen the baby yet. And I said, were you not there for the birth? No, she wanted her mummy. And I thought that was so lovely. And he was there with his teddy for the baby and the flowers and the balloons. And and it, it was funny. It just struck me then that I hadn't bought, been given anything, like a bunch of flowers when I'd had. It never even entered my head. Um, and I said to him, wow. Do you know, just looking at that 17-year-old, you never even gave me a bunch of flowers on the way up. And he went, I'm paying your electricity bill for you this month, aren't I? Because I had asked him that month, could he pay the electricity bill? Because I had no money in my account and that obviously wasn't working. I said, can you pay it? And he said, I'm paying your electricity bill. You can be guaranteed he's not paying her electricity bill. And in my warped sense at that time, I went, oh, God, yeah, he is right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have asked for the flowers. And it never entered my head to say, my electricity bill? Our electricity bill. Yeah. Didn't even enter my head. And, and and when I look back, I go, God, that was some amount of control that I never, like that appeased me that, you know. But I mean, hindsight is something that, you know, is a powerful thing. I want to know, Louise, how, 
How is your relationship with people outside of of this environment? So, like, did you confide in anybody at the time? At the time, initially, no. People knew, my friends knew, but he, they wouldn't be around him. And did they know that maybe it was to do with him or did they know the extent of what was happening in they the home? They didn't know the extent of what was happening because I knew if I told them the extent, I'd have to leave him. And I knew if I had to leave him, I was going to plunge ourselves into poverty. So, you know, I couldn't have looked my friends in the face and told them what was going on and gone back into the house because I felt I would have lost their respect if they knew that I was willing to put up with that. I couldn't tell them. So there was a, a sense of pride as well. Huge, yeah, huge. You, you know, you don't want to admit that you've got yourself into this mess and you're this dependent on, on somebody. Um, and so how, how did it go then after the birth of your daughter? So, so what actually, was the relationship yeah, like? So as after the birth of my daughter, things got really bad because I wasn't working. I had absolutely no money. Um, but yet all the bills, all the direct debits were coming out of my account. So the mortgage, insurance, ESB, for everything. And no money going in. So every month I would panic. And he had his weekly wages coming in and they were still his spending money because that's what it was. And so every month, you know, before the end of the month, when I knew the bills would come in, I'd have a week of not sleeping, a week of, you know, stealing up the thing going, can you give me money to put into my bank account to pay the bills? So uh, you had to beg him? Oh, I had to beg him, yeah. And every month there'd be this screaming match where I was useless, I was incompetent, I was a leech, I couldn't do anything right. You had a newborn baby, though. Yeah, a newborn baby. I couldn't even put her in a question, couldn't work. Um, and at that stage, because I had no money, my car was no longer taxed and insured, so I couldn't even get out of the house and he wouldn't get my car taxed. He said, why would he waste his money? and get?" It? So I was stuck in the house um, with no money, like literally. And when I say no money, I mean not five euro in my purse. Like I couldn't even get a bus. I couldn't do anything. I was literally stuck there. Um, and then uh, so and then the buggy broke and he said he'd take it away to get fixed and he never brought it back. And then I genuinely was stuck in the house for So he took like the mode of transport for your child away so I couldn't on leave. top of everything. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't even go for a walk. I was stuck in the house, like literally stuck in the house. And so when did it become a situation? I mean, like, obviously it was a situation that you needed to not be in, but what changed for you? What was the moment when you kind of realised that you needed to, to talk to someone and to to figure out a, a way out? Because even though you said that the biggest fear that you had at the time was being plunged into poverty, you know, was that the only thing that was keeping you there or, or did it keep you there for too long? It kept me there for too long, but I was just so concerned about my two children. That's all I cared about. And I could, I felt I couldn't, I couldn't see a way out. There was no way out because... I couldn't leave the house to even try to talk to somebody or explain what was going on. I didn't have any money to get anywhere. So I kept thinking and I kept thinking every month was such a strain of, you know, trying to get the bills together. And I knew that any day now the bills wouldn't be paid. And I was looking at alternatives. I genuinely was looking for any solution. And 
in, I couldn't think of anything. And then the only thing I could think of was I had a 250,000 life policy. And before that got cancelled, before direct debit was bounced on that, that I needed to kill myself to keep my kids safe. And I couldn't afford to even go to the solicitor to write a will. But I, I wrote one anyway. And I, and I hid it. And I, I told my two friends where it was hidden. And I said, when I kill myself, take this will and make sure the two children are kept safe and sign it as if you've witnessed it. Please just do this for me. They obviously started getting concerned that, well, obviously that was, I didn't admit what was going on, but then they knew things were really bad. Mm. And my friend said to me, uh, my friend Mary, she said, I think you're suffering postnatal depression. I need to bring you to the GP. And she made the appointment for the GP for me. And I told him when he came home from work that day that Mary thought I had, had postnatal depression and she was bringing me to the GP. And he said, she's an interfering wagon. And if you go anywhere with her, that's us finished. I'm walking out of here and you'll never get a penny off me. And he said, I swear to God, you do that. So I had to cancel it and I had to phone her and cancel it. He said, I'll bring you instead. So I said, OK. So I cancelled the appointment and made a new one for when he said he'd come. And I phoned him up that night when he was due to come. And he forgot about it because he was too busy and I was just a leech anyway. So never got to the GP. Um, and then just options were running out. So I made my plan. I thought uh, I had two big plans. One was to get my son into secondary school and make sure he was settled. And the other one was to get my baby christened. So my son went to secondary school in September and he was settling in well. And then in November, I arranged the christening and with the pure intention that I've done what I need to do for my two children. I have the will written, I have everything. I still have the life policy and I will kill myself and that'll be it. And they will be kept safe. They will have a roof over their heads and my two friends are going to look after. And um, that's what I did one night. I did all my stuff and I, I took tablets and ended up in a hospital. Um, and then when they started talking to me, they said, this is abuse. This is every type of abuse, physical, emotional, financial, every type of abuse. And I kept saying, no, 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 it's not. I'm not in an abusive relationship. No, no, it's, you know, made, I couldn't. And they kept saying, phone women's aid. And I said, no, because in my head, women's aid were for women who were in hospital every week with all their teeth knocked out. So I couldn't identify, didn't see how that was me. And I suppose wouldn't identify, not only couldn't, but wouldn't. And um, this nurse then just said to me, you won't believe me that you're in an abusive relationship and you don't think you deserve to phone women's aid. And we're having this battle every day. So I'm going to phone women's aid. I'm going to give you the phone. And if you tell them your story and they agree with you, I'll never ask you to phone them again. Of course, I phoned them. And of course, they said it was, a, you know, they validated, you know, I still didn't see it. I still didn't see it. And I came out of hospital and I went back home with him. 
Um, and he treated me even worse. Like, it's hard to believe, but it got even worse. So I came home in the November. And then about three days after Christmas, he assaulted my son really badly. And I found out two, a day later. And when I saw my son, that was it. Like, I'm putting up with this to keep my kids safe. And if my kids aren't safe, there's no point in you being here. So the first thing I did was phone people and told them. And the reason I told them was because I knew if I told my friends that he had beaten my son, that there would be no coming back. That even if in the midst of my desperation for money or whatever, security or whatever I thought I was desperate for, that there was no way I'd come back if my friends knew he had beaten my son. So that's what I did. It still sounds that, like when you tell your story and that just sounds so upsetting and unfathomable for, for so many people, but it still sounds as if you were going to stay if that hadn't have happened. So you still didn't understand or value yourself in that situation. You still didn't believe that you were an abuse victim. No, definitely not. No. I mean, something had to happen. And I look now and it would have ended up with one of us dead. Definitely. There's no way it could have continued. Um, so even though it's my biggest regret in life that my son was assaulted, it was also the escape that has kept the three of us safe. So, while it, you know, I, I'm not happy he was. And it was the one thing that did get us out of there for good. And so you started phoning your friends. I told my friends, I told him to get out and he thought, he thought it would be like the normal. The same that I'd thing. cave in. Yeah. And, you know, so did I. And had I not phoned my friends, I possibly would have caved in. You know, but because I knew I couldn't ever let him back in the house when he touched my son. So he left. And what was the process then, you know, when he left the situation? Was there still a fear that he would come back? Was he still trying to get back into your life? Was there, was there any kind of... Because obviously at this point you had told people. That must have felt in itself like a weight had been lifted. It did. And it, before that, actually, I, it, just before I had told people he hid them, I'd started, after talking to women's aid, I'd started to make little disclosures. Not a lot, but little disclosures. And I had told one friend that I had no buggy and I hadn't been out of the house. I got out of the house one day a week when we visited his parents for three hours a day, uh, a week. That was my only outing at the house. I, and I'd come back in on a Sunday afternoon and I'd hear the door closing behind me and I know what it feels like to be a prisoner because it felt like the door was clinking on me and I knew I'd be there for the week. But I had told a friend that, I had told her, I can't even walk to the shops anymore. I have no buggy. I am with my daughter 24-7. I have no walk out. I've no anything. And she came over to the house with a little cheap portable buggy kind of thing. And but to me, it was like, oh, you don't know what this means to me. I have freedom. I can't go. I, I can't. Like it was it was a simple gesture, but it was so meaningful and, and gave me such a sense of freedom. And I was so thrilled. And she left the house and his first words were, She's an interfering bitch. We can buy our own buggies. We don't need her to be bringing buggies. And I remember when he said it, I didn't answer him, but I just thought, well, if we could, why haven't we? I just So I was starting in my head yeah. to get that voice back and going, well, why haven't we? Yeah. 
Why haven't we? Why, why have I been stuck in the house for six months for the sake of a 30 euro buggy? Why is the buggy that was cost 500 euro sitting in the boot of your car that you haven't brought back to get, you know, to get it replaced? Did you feel safe when he was gone finally? I felt a huge sense of relief, actually. And I thought I was going to be, because it was my biggest fear. It had been my biggest fear for years that I would not manage being a single parent again to an, another child. So that financial fear was still, oh, was, was still there for you? Oh, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. And, and that I wouldn't manage. So there was, there, all of that was still there. But this sense of relief of not walking on eggshells, not, you know, starting to think we might be able to plan a life for ourselves. We might, we might just make out, get this out. And getting support of people, like even just being told, you know, there is social welfare, there is there, I didn't know that, you know. Yeah. Um, all of this type of thing. Um, and, and trying to, you know, build a life back up. But honest, the system is so against women in that situation, so against, because the court system, having to go to court to beg for money from a judge who doesn't know anything that's gone on and gives you five minutes if you're lucky in the courtroom and decides whether you're going to live in poverty or not. Or, you know, the court orders are arbitrary. You have to stand there, fight your case. A lot of times you come in with your receipts and bills. I don't have time for that. You know, one stage I remember I was um, back in college and I said, but that doesn't even cover the cost of the question. Well, you should be at home minding your own child from a judge. Um, you know, so the whole having to do it and then and then his con when he left the only th he, there were two things he could control not turning up for not seeing his daughter or seeing her or controlling whether he would or access to her and then the other thing was access to money so there was a court order there that he should pay money yeah. and it, it was on his whim whether it was paid or not and I used to there, there was a pattern and there is still a pattern but it doesn't affect me anymore because I know the pattern and I plan for it. There's a, there was a pattern always the week of a one of my children's birthday, the week of Christmas, the week of Easter, the week of anything that would be going on that I would need the money more is the week that he be, wouldn't pay it. Right. So he was still trying to maintain that control even when you had left yeah. the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I felt it was enabled by not having a statutory maintenance agency, having to go into court and fight him for money, having when he didn't pay. And I mean, at one stage, he was 9,000 in arrears in maintenance. Social welfare reducting, were deducting me on the basis I was getting that money. I wasn't. So we were then below what we would be on social welfare. I remember having to sell every single piece of jewellery I had every piece of gold jewellery, you know, because it was at the time where the gold for sale was really prevalent, going into shops with all my different gold jewellery to make things, just to make sure my children were fed that, that week. I suppose, like, you, you spoke earlier about, you know, the, the sense of pride that you had early on when it came to not telling your story. Yeah. And, like, sitting here and listening to your story, I mean... The only thing, the only word that I can think of is is brave because, you know, you speaking out and telling the truth about what happened to you can only help other women that are in this situation. Um, but I suppose at the very beginning, there was love there. Like you were, you did love this man. Mm -hmm. I did, yeah. 
And I want to know, like, if you were to speak to other women who might be experiencing the early signs of something like this. I mean, advice seems like a, a silly word, but is there anything that you would say to them? Go with your instinct. Go with your gut instinct. I knew, I knew in the bottom of my heart things were wrong, but I wanted, I wanted to buy the image he was selling me. I wanted Which was the, a fairy tale. The fairy tale. I wanted it so badly that I ignored my own gut instinct. And, you know, don't ignore your gut instinct. And, 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 you know, set yourself up. I was independent. I had a career. I had a mortgage. I had everything. And I let him come in and... You know, he shouldn't have stepped inside my door with a key unless he we had sat down and agreed the bills like that from its, the start was controlling that. Yes, he was generous bringing me out to dinner. Yes, he was generous buying stuff for me. But that was still him controlling. And it was a justification yeah. for not contributing to something that clearly should be something that is. Yeah, because then I would have liked to have been able to treat him for a dinner or be able to buy him a drink. But I couldn't do any of that because I was the little woman, even though I was the woman at home paying all the bills, I still was being treated like this dependent when he was actually dependent on me for the roof over his head. Yeah. So trusting your instinct would be the... Trusting your instinct and, and making sure your finances are set in stone before you get involved, you know. And how has your life been finally since this happened to you? Fabulous. A long, hard road. Like like I'm not going to say it was um, easy. I, I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you the amount of times I was in and out of court fighting for maintenance, maintenance enforcement, attachment of earnings, bench warrants, everything, trying to get maintenance paid. I cannot tell you. I genuinely, I'd say there was one year I was 15 times in the court alone and all to no avail. I get my maintenance paid now weekly and, you know, I had to rely on myself to do it. In the end, I said to him one time, if you don't pay the maintenance, I'm going to, because he moved back to his parents, I'm going to sit outside your house with a banner and let all your neighbours know what type of man you are. And for about six months, that worked. And then one day, the money wasn't in when it was supposed to, and I phoned him up. And I was still here because he was chewing food, and I just thought that was, you questioned my manners, and you answer a phone with chewing food. Um, and he was chewing food, and I said, where's my money? And he said, get stuffed, and hung up the phone on me. And I thought, okay, I've threatened to do this. If I don't carry this out, this means he knows he's won again. So on the Saturday night, I got banners together, and I made my banner. Um, and I, Sunday morning, because I knew the place would be busy with people going to mass or golf or whatever. And I sat outside his house for six hours with the banner. And I phoned him and said, if I, if you don't have the money in my bank account by 12 o'clock tomorrow, I'll be back around tomorrow. But this time I'll have friends and I'll have TV cameras and I'll have whatever other media you want there. Um, and my money gets paid now. But it shouldn't have to be that hard. It shouldn't have to be that hard. But now, as I said, my life, I, I went back to college and I did a master's when my daughter was two. Um, and I started working part time and sh she's older now. Um, so now I'm back full time work for the last couple of years. Um, and we have a great life. Um, have you told your daughter about her father? She sees she sees him not all the time. She sees him every now and then. She can't stand him anymore. 
Um, she, 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 she's wiser than I am. She saw through a lot quicker than I did. Um, but my son has not just gone through school, but graduated from DCU. My daughter's flying um, and life couldn't be better for us. Louise, it's so amazing to have spoken to you and thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. I just want to say one more time thank you so much to Margaret Marson, the Director of Women's Aid, for coming in and for highlighting financial abuse with us today. The 24-hour national free phone helpline for Women's Aid is 1-800-341-900. If you or someone that you know is in the cycle of abuse, there are ways out and all the information that you need is on the website as well, womensaid.ie. Thank you so much for listening.